0: You're listening to Religion Matters. Hi everyone, this is Religion Matters, the podcast discussing the intersectionality between issues surrounding religion in the world and the way These issues may or may not impact the various parts of our daily lives. It's that time of the year where students are now turning in their final projects that they've been working on all semester. And for me, I like to have the option for students to do things like this podcasts. And one group of students from my class on nature, spirituality, and ecology taught at San Diego State University have submitted this podcast episode that I'll be playing for you today as their final project for that class. The title is Enduring Spiritualities in the Neocolonial World. I hope you enjoy.
1: Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to Enduring Spiritualities in the Neocolonial World. Thank you for watching our podcast. My name is Adamari Cárdenas-Insunza.
2: Uh, Hello, everybody. My name is Juan Ocampo.
3: Hi, everyone. My name is Madison Gossett. And my name is
4: Tiffany Hungerford. And we are here today to talk about enduring spiritualities in a neo-colonial world. And just before we get started, we wanted to do a little mindfulness exercise. And I want you to think about when you were at the beach. um, Hopefully you've been to the beach, if not think of anywhere in nature. And I want you to think about putting your feet on the ground and feeling that connection and knowing that you are part of something bigger in that moment, whether you call it God by any name or the universe, you just know it and you feel it. So we wanted to take you there for you to be able to have a little beach meditation experience just to get us together and center us on this discussion so i want you to think about standing at the shoreline or your favorite place in nature and really feeling when your feet make that energy connection to the ground and at the beach, the water is coming in and going out. And now as that's happening, the sand is burying your feet, getting pulled closer to the earth. It's like the earth is reaching up and embracing you in that moment. And your energy is one. And just sit with that feeling. And I want you to take some breaths with me so that we can really come to the moment and I want you to exhale loudly so that we can hear each other and be with each other. So inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. And one more inhale, come into us and let everything else go. And let's talk about these enduring spiritualities.
3: Well, thank you, Tiffany, so much for sharing that practice with us. Yeah, I think honestly, just any type of breathing activity is always so good to kind of calm down the nervous system, reground yourself, but then adding that visualization process just makes me want to go to the beach right now and try that out for myself. Definitely. <laughs> yes. I feel like.
2: When I do like any kind of breathing, especially deep inhales and exhales, I can like feel my heart and like see how it reacts to me in the stress and decompressing. And I can feel the heartbeats going down and down. It's like, it's just a nice, relaxing, connecting moment with myself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I definitely feel like, especially right now that we're all kind of in the midst of finals, we all need a moment to just relax and de-stress. so that is very helpful. thank you.
4: Yeah, and how awesome was that in class with the sand that we brought for them and just having that moment together after the semester of talking about these relationships.
3: I think everyone um felt that connection that we're talking about right now that like that bigger thing, that bigger feeling, whatever you want to call that um I think, doing it with other people is so important and, and really connect, like feeling that deeper connection to yourself and feeling um, how really similar to our core everyone, everyone is. And religion uh, can kind of muddle, muddle that up a bit as it tends to kind of get very political, which we actually will be getting into later in this discussion. But I think just those very basic breathing activities that can be such a spiritual experience are so excellent in, in reminding us of, how we need to really just take care of each other.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And it's about, you know, reestablishing that connection, you know, we talked a lot about the disassociation from nature and how that's kind of driven us to the ecological crisis that we're in right now. And, you know, a lot of othering has been done to divide us, whether it be gender, race, ability, religion. And so, you know, it's really cool that we were able to find these spiritualities that endured. And so why don't you kick us off with our purpose?
3: Thank you. Yes. So just to kind of uh, give a you know broad introduction of what we want to be get diving into for the next 40 minutes or so we are going to specifically be comparing hinduism with different latin american indigenous cultures uh, and so the purpose of us kind of choosing these these differing groups really is exploring the pre-colonial spiritualities and cultures uh, and their ecological responses um, to learn what historical lessons have persisted or can be applied um to aid this this ecological balance that we're talking about um it's really about connection whether or not that is to others to the greater being that we talk about or, or to nature um it's all about connection and something that um really has driven this disconnection and this disassociation from nature um has been the anthropocentricity that has been paired with colonialism. And so the again, the reason why these two groups of people were picked was they were on opposite ends of the world, uh, both being ancient cultures that have persisted over centuries with remaining their or maintaining their ancestral um rituals and practices. Um, And they were both colonized by um you know white European groups, whether like you know different European groups, but peoples from the same continent coming and spreading out over the world spreading their various forms of religion and 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 um putting that on to these indigenous groups and so we really want to dive in and just see how how things have changed and um how the ecological process um has kind of left us where we are now Uh, so yeah based on that um just kind of wanted to ask you guys like a really simple question like how how do we get here? With how do you, how are you guys really viewing this disassociation from nature that we talk about?
4: Well, for me, you know, I'm being a Africana studies major, and also with like my explorations that I've taken this semester, um, you know, understanding evil and disability in society and all that. Like it really, it really has caused me particularly this semester to really hone in on colonialism as the issue, not racism, not sexism, none of that. It's colonialism. And so, you know, that disassociation was necessary for people to justify oppressing other human beings who And at least in terms of, you know, for sure, the Aztec, like much more, actually both of them, much more advanced than the Europeans that came and Mm -hmm. colonized them. And so, you know, these narratives have been constructed that are made to divide us and keep us separate and separate from nature so that we care more about what's going on with us than anybody else and certainly the planet and other life on it so you know for me it's been a real colonial thing and i really think there's value there because people who have cultural differences that those other categories create can find unity in trying to disrupt this system that has been so devastating to all life
2: definitely i I think it's like Tiffany said, it, it is a very complex question that pre it goes before even colonization started as all those people in the new world, or I'm just kidding, in, in Europe, as they came over here, they came to interchange with the natives, things that we the natives here didn't really have before. For example, they brought mirrors with them, something that the natives here had never seen. And they started a process of like materialization within the new cultures and and a sense of like hey we have this material stuff and you have all this na- natural stuff like when they came over here they took uh, the corn they discovered potatoes they discovered a bunch of like natural resources and they started a, pr- a process of like exchange but then they wanted more than that, and they started taking over the culture. They started taking over the land, and they started materializing not only the people but the land itself.
3: Um, so, I, the question that I have then, now that we've kind of discussed this disassociation from nature, the one thing I do want to point out um, that I find interesting is is that we we call we refer to these areas that were colonized as like the New World, as these colonizers coming to the New World. But the thing is, right. is like, th- these peoples were here f- for centuries, and they had this, there's nothing new about them. They had these ancestral and historical roots and ideologies so ingrained into, to, into their lifestyles and into their cultures. And so I think also um, the fact like that it's a very colonial term in itself, calling it the new world, because it's something that we use to describe, to describe this, um, you know, process and just pointing out, like... We we as peoples you know outside of that process are still you know ingrained with this uh, colonial kind of um, um, like the, the words in our dictionary are are colonial the uh, roots of them are and so based on that and just kind of um, how that's changed um, you know worldviews ecologically I want I wanted to kind of ask you guys how you think that really either changed or didn't change and maybe made made stronger the sense of uh, Mother Nature and the prominence and prevalence of deities and, and how that's really changed um, through colonial times.
4: Yeah, this whole concept of deities is really interesting to me because it connects Hinduism and Latin American indigenous religions. And we find Mother Earth in Hinduism in the form of Bhumi Devi. And in order to really understand her, we have to understand the Hindu Trimurti who uh, are Brahmin in three forms, a trinity that are responsible for creation, preservation and the destruction of the universe and so lord vishnu is the the god that is responsible for sustaining us and you know hinduism tells us that he comes to earth to save us when basically to save us from ourselves and so you know he's has avatars that he's come to the earth as um you know one being um buddha and krishna who you know gave us this concept of dharma and kind of spiritual duty and responsibility to each other and then you know there's also speculation that one of his avatars could have been jesus and so the uh consort uh female consort of uh believe it's his third avatar, is Bhumi Devi, who's worshipped as the Divine Mother. She's the goddess of Earth and the goddess who is Earth. And in the Hindu mythology, um, the link between her and reverence for Earth is unmistakable. We are indebted to her as she, you know, gives us life and nourishes us and sustains us. And, you know, it kind of leads into this philosophy that's called Vasuhaid of which is, you know, we are all part of her great family, all life, you know, humans and humans are not above any other life simply because we have, quote unquote, more intelligence. Um, You know, it's just recognizing that we're one big family connected by
1: energy. Yeah. So in Latin America, we actually see, um, very similar um to Bumi Devi that Tiffany was talking about. So we actually see it in the Andean people. They kind of believe in um Pachamama, who translate to Mother Nature, Mother, Earth. Um, and as Bumi Devi, she also she's a fertility goddess, um, and she basically oversees and nourishes and protects all everything on earth. Um And this is why uh, the Andean indigenous people respect and um, want to protect her so much, because it's kind of like that inverse relationship that as much as the earth protects us, they also want to protect the earth. They also want to um, show their respects to her, because once again, uh, she gives us so much. She literally lets us live. So just as a way to show their respects
3: I think also like this this kind of transitions into into land management, but um, the idea that Latin Americans had and have today—that's something that's persisted—is um, kind of the concept of human relationship with the cosmos and with ancestry, and it's seen as this intertwined um, representation of time that is depicted through a tree. And so as time, time is kind of this warped um, construct that we have and humans are in a way at the center of it. We are experiencing life in human form amongst you know many other different forms of life, but we have the consciousness and capacity to connect ourselves with our past through you know the passing down of intelligence, through the passing down of of um, ecological, spiritual, religious practices, but we also have this capacity to really connect with um, this greater being. The cosmos is what they call it in Latin America. And so, this this holy tree, you see the the branches and the leaves. They're called the above or the cosmos. It's this connection to the deities, but you really can't differentiate where the branches of the tree end and where the trunk truly begins and this trunk is the the human life experience it's humans um the corpus of of this time this time warp and the praxis of this of this depiction through a tree is the ancestry and the heritage and um, the historical importance um behind you know the meaning of life You have these female and male deities in Latin America, um, female and this also kind of goes into the role of of gender roles and how this has persisted uh, through the way Latin Americans today will will um, confront just different activism uh, roles you have in in the spiritual and religious context you have female deities being prayed to when uh we have good soil conditions when the land is fertile and when uh you know earth mother is is healthy and well and when when drought or famine or whatever the circumstance may be comes along the male deities are then um are then prayed to uh when the for uh the soil isn't fertile when the um Land conditions are not healthy. And so um, not to jump topics, um, we'll get into soil and, and land management and activism in just a second, but it really shows how, you know, the active role that females play in just kind of this maintenance, this ever existing maintenance of the ecological um, you know, spectrum and and the land. Mm. And then you have these male deities who are prayed to again when the conditions are poor. And so for men's role in in uh, ecologically speaking, um, this is where kind of like the not the heavy lifting. that's not the word, the phrase I want to use, but when it when the the battle is more of a a head on head when something needs to be happening in that very moment, a battle needs to be fought in that very moment, ecologically speaking, that's when the male role kind of will come into play. And again, we'll talk about it in a little bit, but that really gets gets um going into you know, the deforestation um, projects and and the activism against that. And so I think it's really important to to point out the different roles that deities play and the role that Mother Nature plays in Latin America.
2: Yeah, just touching a little bit more on the dissociation, uh, it can it can not only be psychological; it, it can be as well as like uh, f- physiological. In in a sense that it can be psychological, is that uh, this dissociating from nature can lead to feelings of hopelessness, a lack of connection with the outside world. It can lead to a diminished sense of purpose and fulfillment, as we and we may feel dissociated from the beauty. In a sense that the the of nature that the, the, the awe of nature provides it can also cause a, a person to become overly dependent on technology and the artificial environment that they are accustomed to nowadays uh, and then on the psych on the physiological side or the physical side the decision can for nature can have serious consequences without regular contact with nature our bodies can become more prone to stress anxiety depression Additionally, a lack of exposure to sunlight can lead to a weak, weakened immune system and a higher risk of various illnesses. So, when, what I'm trying to get is that bringing back simple and traditional ways of being in nature and coexisting with nature, for example, managing the the way we manage the land, or or the way we enjoy ourselves spiritually within it, is not only it's not only essential to practice the always before they all forgotten. Given that they give us so much nourishment in our in a sense of being interconnected with nature, uh, all, all practices take into consideration the balance that is necessary to conserve an ecosystem that not only provides human with an oasis of food and water and a space to connect with nature, but also a space that provides all the necessary resources for wildlife. And nature in general to thrive. For example, in India, or spe- specifically in the culture and the religion of Hinduism, they, re- they revert to rivers, mountains, forests, and animals as sacred. They love to be close to nature. Many Hindu villages have sacred lakes surrounded by, by a grove of trees that catch rainfall and protect the banks of the lake from erosion. Uh, Together, the lake and the trees store water for irrigating the fields and supplying the wells of of the village drinking water. Not only are these landscapes serene, but they also serve as habitat for wildlife. The lakes and the grooves are a place of tranquility and a sanctuary for wildlife. However, like I mentioned in recent times, the neglect of these simple techniques for gathering and protecting clean water and the clean environment, uh, serious water shortages have been advancing and certification in many parts of India has taken place.
3: And like just kind of branching off of that and like, you know, briefly touching on just like the soil and slash land management on the Latin American side, um, the Latin American people, I mean, you know, I talked about the holy tree and connection with nature in that way, but the intricate knowledge that Latin Americans had in historical times and the soil talk taxonomy um and the layering of the soils that like that information has been passed down through centuries and that's something that has been maintained through colonial periods of time and so like just touching on some of the the examples of of this intricacy is micromanagement or i'm sorry micro uh climates throughout the you know Latin American region were covered with biodiverse crops created by these indigenous cultures because they were able to to manage these microclimates by living with the environment. They weren't utilizing or looking at this as the land as, you know, a tool for me to use. It's something that it will produce what will sustain us if we give it what needs to sus- or what if what needs to sustain the land? And so um, they their knowledge was so intricate that different groups of indigenous people were actually able to manufacture or create fertile soil. They were able to create fertile um, mini forests. They were able, to utilize aqueducts, irrigation systems, agroforestry, which is something that's very, very becoming very prevalent today. But that we have to again realize that that's not a new technique. Like these are techniques that were established centuries ago because these people that were connected to the nature or to the environment and to the ecosystems around them were able to have such biodiversity through their knowledge, like being passed down.
4: These two groups, both Hinduism and Latin American indigenous groups throughout several areas in the Mexico, Central and South America, um, they're using legal and legislative action as kind of a way to put the brakes on development they're trying to slow it down long enough until all of us can reach the hearts of people so that they care about the environment the way that they should and um how it's happening in India is you know the the rivers there are considered sacred they're goddesses and you know they are there to purify us and help us, you know, achieve a higher birth or, um, you know, moksha and, you know, they're really cleansing, but these rivers are all, you know, so many water bodies are heavily polluted because of the effects of colonialism India's primary objective coming out of when they gained independence from the British in the 40s was industrialization. I was watching a video that uh, showed uh, exchange students from various areas of the world from the 1950s. So this right is right when Africa is going through its decolonial period right after India and so there's students from Mexico and um Nigeria and India and England I'm sorry South Africa and <clears throat> they asked the the young man from India you know what is what is India's primary pro- objective right now and he said industrialization and you know these, we've created this system where these two cultures have felt like they need to catch up with development. And so these things that they normally wouldn't do, they've started doing in order to try to assimilate into this global system. And so in India, in order to protect the rivers that get dumped with a billion gallons of raw sewage and industrial waste, day. They're trying to halt that um, by granting personhood to these river goddesses and giving them rights to exist and to, you know, particularly the river Ganga and its tributaries, um, like all natural water should be able to flow continuously and you know they're trying to get these initiatives passed and they do get them passed but unfortunately there's no teeth behind it because then the government is kind of you know hands off of who's responsible for this who's going to regulate this if these suits come forward who's going to be held responsible and so this human ego And, you know, anthropocentrism is coming into play and still trying to disrupt these cultures, but they're using the West's own system to counteract that. And they're doing it over in Latin America, too.
1: Yeah, so actually in Latin America, there's so much going on as well. And what makes it difficult about trying to stand up for mother earth as we hadn't mentioned before um is that there's so much that we have to cover there's like you mentioned there's um water pollution and what i'm about to talk about is more about um deforestation and um i'll just get into it so we there's there's a lot of groups in latin america that actually um uh, are always trying to fight for what they believe is right, um, but who we really see leading the these, this activism and these fights are the indigenous groups of Latin America. And just to get a little bit more specific about it, so we have um, a lot of indigenous groups really fighting against land exploitation and being on the front lines against climate change. They're traveling to the 20 indigenous women are traveling to the 2016 United Nations climate change negotiations. um, And they're really fighting for um, the development model that puts indigenous rights and environmental justice over extractivism or unsustainable resource exploitation. Um, In Peru, we have um, someone by the name of Maxima Cunha who successfully helped halt the development of the controversial Congo mining project which is obviously um, under resource exploitation that affects us all. Um, in Central America, we have um, indigenous people fighting to protect forests facing, facing deforestation due to cattle ranching, which is, has obviously grown ex- Im- immensely over the past few years. Um, uh, well, there's, um, they're trying to protect 10 million um, hectares of or acres of land by 2030 and they're really um trying to protect five forests spanning from Mexico to Colombia that are really crucial to combating climate change um as they get rid of carbon dioxide emissions from burning fossil fuels and just what we really see um throughout a lot of these groups is that it's really the people that are that are leading these um these these fights and they're speaking out against climate change and um protecting earth are really the indigenous people and this kind of goes back to how we were talking about um that they really know their land and they know how it's supposed to be functioning and they know um when it's when it's being exploited and when something is going wrong and at the moment they they're definitely seeing um a lot of it going wrong by um exploitation of people that are that have much more power over them unfortunately
3: another like just to touch on some some other topics about like the activism and and uh, legislative action in Latin America. Like one thing I wanna point out is you'll see in a lot of different Latin American nations constitution, like for example, um, Bolivia, Colombia, Chile, um, they'll have amendments in their constitution that grant, I believe Tiffany, the, the phrase you used was personhood or grant these rights to the earth to the rivers to the forests um they'll be in the constitution but you'll see that these are amendments that were made mostly in the early 200 or in the early yeah early 2000s so these are very very late amendments compared to when these ecological problems were actually arising it's it's nice to know that there's some Kind of, um, I don't want to say merit, but there is some product or some outcome that is being seen by the activism. Um, But who's to say, you know, what a a amendment in in the Constitution protecting the environment really is going to hold when, you know, mega nations are trying to compete with industrialized uh, agriculture. And so that's the huge kind of political ecological, economic debate right now in Latin America, specifically in Brazil, because um, of the Amazon rainforest, which holds, it's the number one um, hotspot of biodiversity in the world. Ninety Over 90% of um, our medications that we use today were derived from the Amazon. Um, not to mention indigenous cultures and tribes still live in the Amazon, um, also not, you know, Regar- also regarding the fact that the amazon is just known as a very spiritual and ecologically important place for these indigenous cultures um so you'll see a lot like how adamari was touching on a lot of indigenous tribes com- trying to combat this deforestation um but it's so it's so difficult when the project at hand has so many special interests and it's not just really a matter of protecting the environment because now it's become political, it's become um, economic. Uh, It's not, the, the question should be, you know, what are the rights of the land? What should be, what should be done to, you know, sustain this, this ecosystem? But what's the question that's actually being asked is how much money can we make by clearing this forest? And I think that's just a huge topic in Latin America right now that's we don't really know how to how to combat that um on a you know on a large scale it's it's something that is going to take a lot of time and it's i think going to take a lot more recognition from ma- major industrialized nations to step in and help these indigenous groups protect their their native land
4: yeah um you know just to close out our legislative action section i want to share <laughs> A quote with our listeners that uh, came from some of our research. It's a uh, Pablo Salon's article entitled "The Rights of Mother Earth," and he explains uh, what he calls wild laws. And a wild law is a law to regulate human behavior in order to protect the integrity of the Earth and all species on it. And it requires a change in human in the human relationship with the natural world from one of exploitation to one of democracy with other beings. If we are members of the Earth's community, then our rights must be balanced against those of plants, animals, rivers, and ecosystems. In a world governed by a wild law, the destructive human-centered exploitation of the natural world would be unlawful. And so while we have legislative action to, restrain the heartless we have activism to try to reach hearts and so how's that working for us in latin america and india
2: well i think i think your quote extends to the quote by Mahatma gandhi which is uh the world has enough for everybody's needs but not for everyone's greed and i think that's the that's the action that all this uh activism movements are trying to combat or implement in order to fulfill everybody's needs, but not everyone's greed. For example, uh, just like in Latin America or uh, across South America, Central America, we found several environmental movements. We also found their counterparts in India. And we can we, we also find one for every single section of the crisis that we are living due to indu- due to the human induced activity. And we find uh, movements such as Boomi Global, Save the Soil, Ride for Rivers, uh, and Narmada, Bakawa, Dolan, as well as the Chikmo movement. All these movements are leading the charge in, in terms of activist movement. Uh, for example, Boomi Global is committed to informing, educating, and empowering people to tackle climate change, biodiversity loss, and pollution. Save the Soil is actively working to prevent soil extinction. Rally for Rivers is striving to save Indus rivers, just, just how you were explaining, Tiffany. Uh, and while Narmada Bacau Dolan is a social movement that opposes to dam projects. And the, finally, the Chipmo, Chipmo movement, it's a non-violent resistant movement to protect India's forests. And like I said, all the efforts are working together in order to protect India's environment and ensure a sustainable future. But I don't think the movements just uh pertain to India. I'm I'm sure it will it will be more of a global perspective and approach to which they're first implementing in India with the hopes that they can spread this knowledge and activism action to their communities around the world, even though every every single community around the world is taking action in their own ways in order to fulfill their own specifically regional needs
1: yeah uh, tiffany your your question actually kind of reminded me of something so in latin america um we actually see so as a response to kind of like try to um bring back their their um knowledge and like their connection to the earth we actually see a lot of um, indigenous groups kind of rejecting the modern status quo and how uh, they're going kind of just going back to connecting with their small communities. And uh, we see this really specifically with, uh, there's there's uh, indigenous groups in Bolivia and Ecuador that kind of created this group called the Indigenous Barter Barter Shop, or in Spanish, they actually called it the um, and this was kind of established in mid 2020 as a response to the pandemic. And they were, they really formed this through WhatsApp, which was really kind of amazing. Um, they they formed it and they were selling and trading agricultural products, handcrafts, knowledge. Um, and they really were looking out for their own communities. They were looking out for their own families. And it's just awesome that we get to see this in, in real time
4: and i think one thing that's super interesting about these activist movements that we've come across is just how centered ecofeminism is in these you know it's the the women who are tending to lead the charge on these you know global climate issues and there's a quote from a Chipko movement, laureate in the 80s, who says that both the trees and the mothers teach that to live, and also to be ready to die for the sake of others proves to be the real fountain of bliss. And so, you know, this this woman led movement for me, you know, I, I kind of connect that as being a mother and a grandmother, our natural uh, instinct is to nurture and protect. And we don't want to see harm come to anybody. You know, I, I see it as a, um, a connection to, you know, whether it be Bumi Devi, Pachamama, Mother Earth, whatever we want to call this wonderful place that we get to live. And so, you know, I think it's so cool that we get to see that manifested in these activist movements where they're trying to touch people's hearts. Unfortunately, with that comes, you know, Some of the challenges that these groups face in the form of, um, you know, starting with capitalism, like in Latin America, they lead the world in the rate of criminalization and killing of environmental and human rights defenders. You know, these women that are basically laying their lives on the line to try to make this world a better place for us. I mean, any kind of activism that pushes against neocolonialism
3: is inherently dangerous to your life i mean capitalism just as a whole the the driving factor of it is and this really goes hand in hand with the um with the biodiversity loss in the amazon is that we we push consumption 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 and all that really does is create this craving feeling of wanting more it doesn't it doesn't do any bit of of connection or of uniting Um, we, we have used capitalism as, as this, you know, worldwide market to, yes, it, you know, there, there are great benefits to capitalism. It's, it's, um, it has created a lot of, you know, progress in the world, but at what cost and the way that it has, you know, defined progress has been, has resulted in what we're seeing now is just complete ecological destruction. When you look at kind of the history of of just humans and, and life on Earth, it's not until the last, you know, a couple hundred years that we've defined progress in this way. Every other culture before industrialization would have defined progress as, you know, having a healthy environment and healthy land. And that's what's so prevalent in in these indigenous cultures still and so important that we learn from. Another challenge we ran into,
4: particularly on the Hindu side, centers on counterintuitive beliefs and practices. And this is most clearly seen in the sacred rivers. Now the main river, Ganga, is the river goddess worshiped as the mother and provider. And the Fodis will bathe in her waters to be cleansed of their sins, ashes of the dead will be immersed in the water so that the solar Atman can be led to a higher birth or liberation. And her name is chanted with the belief that it will bring freedom from poverty and protection and lead to Liberation from samsara, and although the river and its tributaries are highly venerated, it doesn't necessarily mean that people are concerned about the ongoing pollution. We mentioned earlier: billion gallons of raw sewage and industrial waste are pouring into it every day, but the transcendental purity of the river can't be damaged because of this view of purity and so a deep healing is needed for this sickness for us to return to love and so we wanted to leave you with some answers from some experts in these two spiritualities Juan and I visited the International Society for Krishna Consciousness in the Pacific Beach neighborhood of San Diego and spoke to Balarama Dasa. And this was his answer to our final reflection question.
5: So, so because people think, oh, just be neutral. Well, I mean, it doesn't exactly work like that. Now you could say, well, I'm kind of part of the solution. I'm kind of part of the problem. Okay. Yeah. You know, sure. You know, we do our best. We're humans. We're, we're, we're imperfect, but there is something to that, that, you know, we're part of the problem We're part of the solution. So, and and it's not to make us feel bad. It means we should, in other words, we can make a difference. We should try to make a difference. Um, in even small ways, you know, try to make a difference and, uh, try to be a positive force in the world. Try to be, uh, you know, somebody who stands for objectively good principles, you know, universally good principles. Um, and they say charity starts at home. So it's great to want to help the world, uh, and people that that's great. Um, but charity starts at home means begins at home means we also have to help ourselves, you know, have to take care of our own needs. And again, prim- primarily, if we if we study into it, it, it makes sense that we're actually spiritual by nature. So our our primary needs are spiritual.
4: And we really hope you enjoy that audio just as much as we do. And. We hope that we have brought something forward that we can all learn
3: from. So just on that note and everything, you know, we've discussed, um, thank you, Tiffany, for, you know, sharing your experiences through with healing practices. I think that's something that's so impactful. And um, I, I hope to experience that at one point. And I really hope that everyone listening gets a chance to experience something on that, you know, on that on that level at some point in their life. Um, But I just want to thank all of you guys for your very thoughtful discussions and your thoughtful um, contribution. Um, And thank you to our listeners for sticking around and being interested in such an important topic. So thank you all. Appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, everyone.
2: Thank you, everybody. Thank you,
4: and thank you guys this has been Enduring Spiritualities in a Neo-Colonial World and let's see how we can apply some of these lessons to help heal our planet take care everybody take care
0: I'd like to thank Adamari Juan Madison and Tiffany for their wonderful project it was quite insightful to to see how two cultures from opposite sides of the planet can have similar concepts with how we can connect to spiritual ecology. So thank you for sharing your research with us. My name is Kirk Sandvig and I teach at San Diego State University and Chapman University. And for the next few weeks, we're going to have a few more of these student projects as we gear up for our next season of Religion Matters. And I hope you enjoy these as much as I enjoy them. I'm always fascinated to see where students are most passionate as they work on projects like this to further their development and understanding the ways in which religion impacts their daily lives. So enjoy these next few weeks as we get into these passionate projects from students. Take care.